In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we needed to write as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. So it's book review time on this episode of Notably Disney as I welcome back some favorite fellow podcasters who have participated on many past episodes of the show. It's Courtney Guth and Emily McDermott of the Book of the Mouse Club podcast that spotlights Disney books and books that have connections to Disney stories. Uh, today we're all on here, Notably Disney, to discuss a recent autobiography published by Disney Editions, and it's from former Walt Disney Attractions chairman Dick Nunes, who worked for the company for 44 years and oversaw much of what we have come to adore at the Disney theme parks today. The book is titled Walt's Apprentice, Keeping the Disney Dream Alive, and I'm glad to have both Emily and Courtney here to talk about the book with me as part of this podcast collaboration, if you will. Because uh, you can also listen to a new episode that we recorded for the Book of the Mouse Club that features a book review of not, not just A Walk in the Park by the late Disney legend Jim Cora and also by popular Disney author Jeff Curdy. So without any further ado, Emily and Courtney, glad to, to see you both. Glad to have you on. Yes, thank you so much. I'm glad that we could pair these two books together as like a cross-collaborative uh, episode for for both of us. So so excited to discuss Dick Nunes here today with you. Yeah, thanks for having us back. It's always so much fun to bring our two book clubs together um, and talk about something we're both very passionate about, which is growing our Disney bookshelf and making sure we actually read our Disney bookshelf and holding each other to doing that. Um, I think we were talking about it. I've had this book since Christmas, so I was so happy when you said we should read this. I was like, yes, finally, it's been six months. I'm going to read it. We need good reasons, right, Emily? I know our shelves just keep getting larger. It's like, what one do I pick next? So it's nice when we can be like, we're doing this one and we can hold each other accountable. And we actually read it. And I really enjoyed this book. I'm excited to talk about it. Courtney, had this one been on your radar? I was aware of it being announced, but kind of slipped through the cracks when it came to um, like my Christmas wish list. Same for the Jim's Cora as well. So when you reminded me of both of them, I think you you asked, which one did we want to do? And I said, why not both? We'll do one on your show and one on ours because they both sound great. Um, so I remember them maybe being paired together in advertising as well, or maybe on like some blog recaps. I think Cora's may have come out first, um, but both kind of being in the, the hopper from Disney Publishing for a bit. Yeah, I think both of these that we're going to talk about between our shows, um, because of Disney 100, I just remember Disney editions dropped like this book's coming out and this book's coming out. And I think one is both of these uh, men were getting older. Uh, we said Jim Cora uh, passed. Uh, it's time to share those stories, but also with an anniversary year, it's the perfect time to release those stories as well. Absolutely. Well, do we maybe want to start off by just getting into the content of this book by Dick Nunes. There are a lot of stories packed into 300 pages thereabouts and lots of pictures too. Um, 
I, we, we could share a little bit about his trajectory, but I also want to invite our listeners, our readers, uh, uh, to also have the opportunity to discover them. Do we want to give a little bit of context to who Dick Nunes is and why we're reading a book all about his life? Well, he is a Disney legend who I believe is in his early 90s now, you know, bless him for trucking through, but he had a 44-year career with Disney. Part of me wondered, like, why didn't you just go to 45? Like, you get a new statue and a new pin on your name tag for 45. You're so close. But I get it. He, I think, you know, he retired at the end of the millennium in 1999. I can see that being like a onto to new pastures, but started uh, as part of the 55 club at Disneyland in 1955, working you know, all the way up to overseeing pretty much all of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts from that side. Feel free to add any other context you like. I think what's interesting about Dick Nunes is that if you're someone in the Disney realm like we are, where we've read multiple books, we dive into theme park history um and the Walt Disney Company like you hear his name quite often but I didn't actually know anything about him um the only story that I knew going into this is I knew he was at Disneyland and when we read um together uh Kevin Rafferty's book his story of his run-in with Dick Nunes in I think it was Club 33 he like spilled stuff and he thought he made like this terrible impression and was like worried as he moved up the ladder that Dick was going to be like, remember when you spilled on my, I forget the exact story, but I think he spilled something like right on the executive table when Dick Nunes was like in line to get food or something. And uh, that was the only thing I knew about him. I was like, yeah, he works at Disney world, but like he has quite a career. Um, He wanted to be a gym teacher or like he wanted to play football, but then with injuries ends up, you know, taking a job uh, at Disney to, you know, rediscover, you know, what do I want to do now that that's not a pathway for me? And then has this 44 year career retiring as the, uh, president of outdoor recreation division, uh, and like was on the board of directors. Like he just has quite a resume and I don't think you're going to know much about him if you don't actually take a second to look at him. That reminds me of how much I loved Kevin Rafferty's book. Um, (laughs) That one, I I think I've read multiple times. Uh, What's interesting in terms of Dick's connection to Disney, it's he was on the USC football team, as you mentioned there, Emily. But why is that important? Well, it's when Ron Miller was also on the team. Ron Miller being, of course, uh, uh, Diane Disney Miller's husband and uh, when they're dating. And, And that's how he got affiliated with the Walt Disney uh, company or you know the early early days of um before Disneyland really that so was the first story that stuck out to me that was the first time I went like whoa because I feel like most other Imagineers or people that we've read about that knew Walt um they were artists they went to Caltech like they found their way into Disney more through I guess, more professional route off the bat. And then they meet Walt, but he met Walt at a family dinner because he was teammates with Ron and got invited by Ron and Diane to, you know, come hang out at the house and like teenagers and college students do. Like he wasn't there for Walt and it was just such an organic meeting versus- He got to ride who... the train. Yes, he got to ride the backyard. Yes. <laughs> and then it was still like a whole couple months before he actually went for a job. So that was such an isolated- moment and he got to see them as the Disney family before Disney the executive and then getting to know the family. I feel like he has such a unique pathway. I did remember him from the Imagineering story, fantastic uh documentary six parts on Disney Plus because I don't know if anyone else noticed this. They definitely worked on that documentary for years. And Dick Nunes ages like 15 years over the course of the documentary, but like in the same episode, they're like, oh, we have this one clip that we took of him at Disneyland. And then there's one that's definitely shot at Walt Disney World. I'm like, you you interviewed him years apart. I was like, it's the same name, but that guy looks so much older. I mean, God bless it. Like, he, keep on keeping on, Dick. But like, I specifically remember him from the Imagineering story for that reason. But also great stories that he has to share in there. And so I'm glad we got a whole book of them. Well, and I feel like um, as I engaged more with this book, I realized how intertwined 
Stick was in so many different aspects of Disney history. And certainly, notably, there's that emphasis on the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. It's opening and playing such a pivotal part in getting that off the ground. And they make reference to a 60 Minutes interview um, in which he was uh, interviewed by Mike Wallace, the famous journalist. And uh, he's basically being pressed about um, a lot of criticisms of Disney and, and maybe not uh, contributing its fair part in, in terms of supporting um, the community and also crime in Florida that had been increasing. You can actually watch that 60 Minutes clip on YouTube, and it's quite a fascinating um, time travel experience uh, in, in that regard. So it's it's interesting to, as you're saying, you know, uh, uh, Courtney, in terms of like seeing Dick at different points in time, but also like if you can actually watch a video of him like 50 years ago and, and how he was describing the company. It's It gives further context to what we're reading on paper here. I think something content-wise that I really liked is he is an operations guy. Uh, now for Courtney and I, for, uh, former cast member for myself, current cast member, where we both worked in the parks. Like Operations all about the parks. How are the parks moving? How are they working? And I feel like a lot of books that we tend to read go to those Imagineers, go to the Imagineering story. And I like that he really differentiated what operations goals are and what his goals were for the parks versus Imagineering and that they're both important. Like he constantly talks about the need for capacity and that's something as park guests, something you'll be happy that he addresses. Like we want people to move through lines. How do we accommodate growing crowds, um, timing, placement, um, I love that he talked about the show buildings that after the World's Fair, they were like, oh, we don't need to like design a building. We just need an entrance. And then how you go outside the berm, but you don't know you're outside the berm. Um, so how those things collide. But I thought he did a really good job of kind of balancing of Imagineering is important and we love the things that they do. We don't have Disney without them. But he gave a lot of credit to operations that I think often gets over like the people who let you on and off an attraction like Courtney did at um, Space Mountain um, and that timing. And he told that story that Walt likes to, or that I've heard numerous times, Walt with the Jungle Cruise, it's supposed to be a seven minute ride, but Walt's all mad. He only got a four minute ride and they like had to figure all that out. Um, so I think that's a cool perspective that if you're used to reading books from Imagineers, here's a guy who was rooted in operations and you'll get a different view of the park and of Walt as well. In many ways, this and maybe this is a, a transition of sorts, but this really comes across in many ways as a leadership book, not just because of each of the very short chapters, like often just a page or two or several pages ending with the lessons learned. But as you're uh, pointing out there, Emily, it's this notion of him indicating here are the considerations that we had to have because of we're managing such a major uh, operation and that counterpoint to the Imagineers, right? There's almost this notion of perspective taking that has to happen because he's described at uh, maybe not as much depth at times, but sometimes they would lock horns and they would get into disagreements over what are the priorities. Um, so this, in many ways, I view this as a as a leadership book for you know business executives and other folks who are trying to ascend in management because of some of those universal takeaways that uh, manifest here. I absolutely agree. I recommended it to my leader. My leader is a wonderful leader, but I just know that he likes a lot of developmental things. He tends to listen to audiobooks of that nature. And I was like, oh, I think you'd really like this one because it's, it's Disney related, but there's the leadership element. And I was delighted to learn that he played such a foundation in the creation of what we now know for Disney as traditions, uh, the class that every single cast member goes through with the motto where we learn we create happiness and to learn the origins of that with his partnership uh, with Van France and how it's it's interesting that Emily you shared he wanted to be a gym teacher and ended up becoming a Disney teacher in a way he then moved into like operational capacity organizational leadership but the the teaching was at the foundation of what he started with. I was really excited when they mentioned the four keys because I remember learning about those in tradition. So understanding where those come from, I didn't realize how far back the four keys went. And it went all the way back to 1955 with Dick Nunes, which is really cool. 
and that they continue to grow. He shared some changes that were made to those four keys. And I think that even continues today now with Disney's uh, five keys and the addition of inclusion, though I feel um, there were elements of inclusion that he touched on within the book. So that foundation has been a long time a part of the company. Now it's just fully recognized as the fifth key. You get the sense of you, you both were talking about the emphasis on efficiency. And um, it sounds like Dick was the type of manager and, and employee who was just always present and always observing and always trying to think of how can how can this be better in terms of guest flow, but also attending to, you know, um, cleanliness and, and so many factors. And I was so struck by a, a line, I think he said that he would often walk around the parks, like for like 26 miles per day, some, many days, that's incredible. But it just shows that it was, it was it's on the ground. Literally yeah. a marathon. A Disney marathon. A yes, day. He, he started run Disney, but what? <laughs> They should they should have a race named after him as as opposed to some of the characters, right? I would it's not. not that. It's not a dopey race. It's the Jake Nunes race. Yeah. Well, no, Dopey's forty eight point two miles because that is a five k, ten k, half, and a full all over the span of four days. I think I think he should just get the marathon. Like that that's enough. Um, but I'm glad you brought up that story, Brett, because he talks about how he did that because he learned it from Wall and something we talked about on our show is the more we read these memoirs and stories from other people who actually knew Walt and that population is getting smaller and smaller to hear from people who actually worked with him. Um, it's interesting to always hear about Walt Disney, I feel like from other people who got to work with him, not through like an autobiography perspective, but through other experiences. So I wonder from you guys, like, what did you take, what did you learn about Walt that maybe you didn't know before? How should I put it? Um... So there was the anecdote about when Walt passed away, and we've heard so many different accounts of of what it was like to be in that in that vicinity in that space. And I guess uh, something I learned about Walt was actually by virtue of Lillian, um, who he was married to for for decades. And Lillian was insistent that the park open, um, even despite Walt's passing, and and relaying that to to Dick and and, and various uh, executives. And I think that's maybe illustrative of Walt that I maybe hadn't um, taken away, at least not in the works I've previously engaged with, which is kind of life moves on and you you honor the people around you and you do that by, by still trying to create happiness for others. So although I've heard that story in different ways, I, I don't know if I necessarily took away that it was Lillian who really pushed it, which I feel like is a reflection of Walt because she wanted to honor what Walt would have wanted to. I'm not sure if that kind of constitutes what you were thinking. I think it does. I I would agree that that was a perspective that I hadn't heard before. I think I knew that it opened, but really getting the the conversation that led to that occurring. I also thought of the passing of Walt because in a lot of these stories, I think really crump others. You can just see how profoundly it affected them, not just when writing, like when you watch I'm just gonna go back to the Imagineering story but it's so touching like seeing Bob Gurr and and Rolly Crump like they are still tearing up over 50 years later about that moment and what Walt meant to them I mean I, I think this really it's he's honored in the title the idea of of Walt's apprentice and the regard that Dick holds him in and try to carry forth Walt's legacy. Certainly, if, if your listeners aren't familiar, the Walt Disney Legacy Award is awarded to about 1% of cast members. If you're in the theme parks or on the cruise line and see a cast member with a blue name tag, um, they have been honored with that by carrying Walt's legacy forward. Um, it's only, I think, about 10 years old. There were other awards given. Uh, but I think Dick Nudis should absolutely have one. Like, Can we give him one retroactively? Because I see a lot of Walt's legacy at work here in this book. I thought something was interesting to see Walt through Dick Nunes' eyes because when he started working for Walt Disney, he was younger. Um, he was in his later 20s. I mean, probably closer. He was in his young 20s, mid 20s, out of college. Football's no longer a thing. So he's got to be somewhere between yeah. 22 to 25. Um, where I feel like a lot of the other people he brought in, maybe I'm getting some dates wrong, but I don't think as many people, at least that we've read, started with him that young. 
they were more the studio like they started young but they were starting in the 30s like they were more right they started with animation not directly in theme parks so i think dick news's perspective gives us a really unique we only get to see walt through a park perspective whereas some other ones we've read these are also people who used to work on film who used to work on um merchandise like other things with disney television um and parks and they kind of touch on all three so it was cool to see walt through just a park lens through dick's um memories and stories but i think we also got to see him as much more of a mentor figure and that sounds pretty normal we always see him as a mentor but i feel like from dick news's stories like i really saw him as i am training you to run this park whereas others i felt like he inspired me to try something new. He inspired me to pursue a new job, but I feel like he picked Dick Nunes when he was hired. He's like, no, I'm going to see you through this. And we got that longevity of mentorship that I don't think with others, I at least from reading, have seen as much. I did like the story, though, where we know that Walt was a smoker and uh you know, part of Walt didn't want smoking in in the theme parks, but he would sometimes like you know maybe walk around backstage with it or on stage in off hours, and so Dick didn't want that image for any of his cast members. So he'd be like, "Hey, like please don't smoke when you're on your break, but just off stage." And they're like, "Well, Walt does it." So then he had to go to Walt and be like, "Hey, can you not do that?" And so that can be very intimidating. I think that was a good lesson, and sometimes having to to coach up uh, to your mentor or or to your leader, but Walt was very receptive to that. Um, and I guess, you know, took his smoke breaks maybe up in the apartment. Were there some Disney discoveries, if you will, that unfolded through reading this? Maybe not necessarily about Walt per your question there, Emily, but about just the company or different parts of the theme parks that were like, wow, I I never had that information or context until reading it in this book. I'm glad we got to hear more about Bermuda shorts because I was aware of the legend, the myth, the man, the myth, the legend, Dick Nunes and his infamous Bermuda shorts. And you know what? He fully owned that. He was like, they were stylish. I looked good in them. Um, We definitely got like a picture of them, I I believe, in there. Uh, If not, you can you can look it up. And he's like, Bermuda shorts. We're going to make them happen as business business casual. Didn't quite pan out, but I do love that photo of him like in front of the contemporary in his Bermuda shorts, loafers and and socks. Was that that that's in the photo section, right? Okay. Interestingly, just pause on the photos. I read it on ebook through the library and there were no photos. So I didn't even know that was a thing. And then I happened to be at Barnes and Noble last weekend. And it was on the local interest table. And I was like, wait, there's photos. I was like, I gotta, I gotta look at these photos so I can, can talk about this on the show. I was so glad I happened to see it there. Otherwise, I would have missed out because I love when photos are part of biographies. One of the also good photos was them doing a board meeting in pajamas. Um, because since he was flying back and forth so much, because he was working both on Walt Disney World Project X at the time, and he was working still in Disneyland. And then they're contemplating Tokyo and Paris. Like he's all over the place. So he kept moving his meetings and some of them just got so early that people started coming in pajamas. And he's like, I I might need to change that because he was not a big fan. He thought it was funny once or twice. And he's like, we need to change that. But I like that they had a picture, including the guy with the shaving cream still on his face because they were making fun of, I I loved that work culture where they were like, we're going to do this because we know Dick Nunes is going to be a little salty about it. Um, so they played it in good fun once or twice and the guy even showed up with shaving cream I thought that was funny what discoveries did you have Brett oh um St. Louis Riverfront Square which isn't discussed too much in Disney history this was in the same phase as Mineral King and Disney looking at other sites that where they could have a um uh where they could have a presence and um, so he was actually selfishly glad that uh, it didn't come to fruition because he says, quote, I was glad I only had to split my attention between operations on two coasts and got to skip the territory in between. So going back to that notion of constant travel there, um, it, not a lot of details were afforded um, on that, but certainly there were there were limitations on uh, why they didn't pursue it further. I think that was one disappointment at times with the book. If I 
admit, like there were some interesting stories and details I would have wanted a bit more depth on some of them, but I think that's also a reflection of the type of book that this is and the formatting of each chapter being so brief and in some ways self-contained. They really were, I'd agree, there were things like the um, celebrity sports and like bowling center he got to manage, but I'd say most, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I was reading on a Kindle, but would you say the chapters are around like three to four pages each, if that? Uh, I don't know how it translated exactly to print because, uh, you know, on a Kindle, it depends on your font size. Um, I, As a reader, I did somewhat appreciate that because it made it very easy for me to like find a stopping space if let's say I'm reading this on my lunch break away from my desk but it's not like oh my gosh I still have another 20 pages in this chapter like I'm going to be late to this meeting I was like okay like I finished this one this is a a good stopping place um but I I agree I wanted I wanted more from some of them but this was more I think about width than depth like we got a wide range of his history you know starting from his early childhood in southern California all the way up um through his retirement so it makes sense that he did a lot of things so like how long we don't want this to be a 500 page book maybe I don't know I would have read it still because I liked his storytelling I will say I did find him to be a very fun narrator had a very strong voice throughout um tone like it's not someone where I'm like oh I'm really familiar with the way they sound but I feel like if I did I'd be like oh I I hear him in this yeah, to me, the way he tells stories, and I've said this before, I think about Raleigh Crump and some of the other uh, memoirs that we read across our shows, that it sounded like your grandparent telling you a story about when they were a kid. They're, they know they got your attention for maybe four minutes. So they're going to tell you, and it feels like a very familiar story, like it would be one that they tell over and over and over. But yeah, you do lose some of that detail. Um, like I would say for readers who are going to read this, is a wonderful story, but if you're gonna jump into that chapter about mineral king he'll give you a brief context but you're not gonna know much about what mineral king is or he talks about like yeah epcot's opening but he's not gonna talk about how he touches on like there's this how do we preserve walt's legacy what he originally wanted but there's entire books that discuss just that one instance of what walt wanted versus what we got so it if you're looking for like disney history you're not gonna get a lot of that factual stuff but you get a lot of the emotion you get that um, personal touch. Um, and I did like the short chapters also because it's a three, it's almost a 300 page book, which is not terribly long. It's a good medium. It has wide margins, I think, though. We talked yeah, about that with Marty Scalars and Jim Corris is the same way. I'm like, y'all put like one and a half inch margins on this yeah. book. What so it makes it look like? longer. Maybe it that's does. a marketing thing, but it so. also made me read. I mean, I read fast because suddenly you're like, oh, the page is over, but there's like three fourths of a page that's blank or the back of the page is blank. So you suddenly read 25 exactly. pages in I 15 got minutes. Intimidated when I first looked at both of these books, like, okay, I got to read two books this month and I'm starting grad school. Like, what am I going to do with this? I got to start reading right away. And I read I read Dick Nunes's in like three days. Like, I thought I was like, all right, I counted the number of chapters. There were like 80 something. I was like, if I read seven chapters per day, then I will, you know, hit this time period. I was like, no, I, I really did devour it because it moved so quick. So I would say do not be intimidated by maybe what the, the yeah. size of the book looks like. And I do think it is accessible to anyone like who reads as much as we do about Disney history um, and theme park history, or if you're newer to it and you want something more lighthearted or less, I don't know, textbooky, I don't know, that has so much depth to it. Like it's accessible to everybody, but if you are looking for some more depth, maybe start here, but you might need to continue your Disney education if you're looking for more detail about facts feel like that's something that I'm trying to get into the mindset of as I approach a new book is what expectations versus reality, right? This is an autobiography that is a leadership both uh, a leadership book. It's also covering a lot of breath, as you're saying there, Courtney, over many years. There's not going to be that level of detail. So if you go in with that mindset and that this is a starting point, as you were just saying, Emily, then I think you'll come away from it having an appreciation for what it represents. On the other hand, if you want to know about the nuances of all those projects, you just turn to Leslie Iwerks' massive Imagineering Story book and the documentary, but the book is so much more extensive. 
and then you you feel like you ha- your your appetite is fully satiated um if, if you're wanting to, that uh amount of context whereas this is it, it's kind of what what you see is what you get and it's very uh scrumptious um but it's it's not going to um you're not going to taste everything in the same way I like that. And I like the idea of looking out and seeking your own information. That is something I did in an unexpected way. As he was telling different stories of um, having to come to Florida uh, while still living in California to oversee the Florida project that eventually becomes Walt Disney World, he kept talking about these Bay Hill cottages uh, where they would stay. He was saying, like, we had to stay in these different motels, but I eventually convinced them to like invest in these cottages. Roy Disney loved them. It was a slice of home. And this is just me being super niche, but I am an Orlando resident and I drive past, if I go home the back way from Disney property, I pass signs that say Bay Hill. I was like, I do not live far from here. Like what happened to these cottages? So that was a weird rabbit hole that I didn't expect to go down to. Uh, I did find out that the cottages still exist, Emily, in their mid-century modern charm. They are part of the Arnold Palmer golf course. Um, so now like you can stay there if you're playing golf or if you're interested. And I'm like, oh, you guys want to do a staycation or come visit me and stay stay in the Disney corporate cottages? Because they looked cute. I was like, it's hard to justify when I live. to find out which one was Dick Nunes's. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I would imagine house. they, you know, stayed at whatever was available. But I was like, do these still exist? Why do I know the name Bay Hill? Oh, because it's a sign on a development. And so he only gave us like two sentences on it, but it sparked my own <laughs> Google, Wikipedia, Airbnb, I don't know, rabbit rabbit hole. That's fascinating. Huh. What did you, um, we alluded to this earlier, what were your thoughts of the lessons learned at the end of each chapter? So needless to say, there are dozens of these takeaways from Dick. What stands out to you? I, I pick really up on think, them. Oh, go ahead, Emily. I really think he had quite a variety. Um, some of them were quotes from Walt. Some of them were quotes from friends. Uh, so how he like used advice. Maybe he got young, late earlier in life and brought it forward years later where it applied. Um, but I do think he has some pretty applicable ones that do span. Um, before I share mine, which ones like stood out to you? Because mine was a library book. I literally took photos. I was like, we're doing a podcast. I know that this is going to come up. So I started um, snapping some pictures. I think one that I really liked I have here was can't is not in my vocabulary. Remove it from yours and see what happens. I thought that that was so simple, but profound. Like often we can feel really bogged down in our work. Like, oh, I can't do that. Or it was a good growth mindset one for me to have right now as I'm in the middle of a master's program. Like, yeah, there are things that are going to be that like I quote unquote can't do, um, but I'm here to learn them and I, I'm going to carry that with me as I move through my journey. That, that's one of two that I saved as well, Courtney. I love that as well. It's all about that notion of uh, resilience and believing in yourself and always finding a way. I also love the one, it was related to improve, I think it was about like food management or production he says uh, make your expectations clear and give people the resources they need to meet those expectations so it's all about having high standards but allowing folks again in a managerial role to be able to do their best to capitalize on their strengths to make them feel like that they can achieve those goals so there's very transferable points across a variety of industries, which I think, again, this this feels like a leadership book, even if it's not labeled as such. So there were a couple that stood out to me. Um, I tagged quite a few of them, but a small, small few that I think were funny. First, I immediately texted Courtney when um, this is on page 116. Uh, the lesson learned is if we can dream it, we can do it. And it is credited to Tom Fitzgerald. And this is something we've talked about so many times on our podcast. It's a quote that's used all the time. And they're like, Walt Disney, he didn't say it. So we were really excited. One, when he quote, when he said lesson learned and he credited it to Tom Fitzgerald. A funny one that I thought uh, early on when they were buying land for Project X and he was one of the buyers uh, he says, lesson learned, if you need a cover story, choose something boring and people won't ask you questions. <laughs> and I that thought was that was just story. funny. 
I want to share that story because I remember that one. I don't remember what the sure. corporation was, but I think was it like something in it was oil? A canning company. Okay. Oh yes, it was a canning company. Something that nobody would ever care about or like ask questions. So he had been visiting Florida, staying at the motels before the cottages that I mentioned, and was part of the air quote canning company. But then it turned out that that canning company had layoffs. So the person at the front desk who got to know him was like, hey, are you okay? Like, I heard about those layoffs. And he had to be like, oh, yeah, I'm good. They Thank you so much for, for caring. There were genuinely funny moments in this book that I, I really enjoyed for him as a storyteller. Um, I had, that, ooh, uh, the last one I had that really stuck out to me, which is still early in the book, there's plenty of good ones, but because I really latched on to how he compared operations to Imagineering, um, this is kind of practical, but I think one that's important for that leadership is uh, he talked about how he kind of labeled in his head different employees as ones, twos, threes, or fours. Um, and threes are your hard workers. They come to work every day. They do their job. They might not have, you know, that quote leadership track um, as their career, but he talks about how valuable it is to have people who are just committed to being a team member and that we can't overlook team members always favoring those who are going to be the next CEO. Um, and he says, lesson learned, don't overlook the valuable contributions of threes, people who may not be super ambitious, but always get the job done. And maybe just from a teacher standpoint, I felt like that was so important because someone might be a three in this field, but they're a one somewhere else. And just because maybe they're at their job, they're good at their job, doesn't mean that, you know, if like, for instance, for me, I don't want to be a principal. I love being a classroom teacher. I don't see a need to go beyond the classroom. That doesn't mean I'm not valuable or that doesn't mean someone else that you're working with is not valuable just because they don't want to be the next CEO of the company. And I just really liked how much he talks about cast members and valuing those cast members. Um, and again, giving that value back to operations that, you know, it's important that people are there doing these jobs and don't undervalue or overlook those people just to talk about leadership and CEOs. Another one that I had started, I think this was also a lot of it just resonated with me because I was reading this the same week that I started my master's. So I'm like, this is applicable. Uh, this was in the chapter about the World's Fair. And so the lesson learned there was take advantage of new experiences as an opportunity to test improvements that might apply elsewhere too. So they were taking the learnings from the World's Fair and he's grateful for that because then they were able to apply that to Disneyland as we already talked about some examples. But I'm like, I'm learning new things in class. I can apply them to work. Uh, but I think also what I take from that is just being open to new opportunities as well because you never know like where that'll have you end up or when it will be relevant again in your in your own work. And all these examples point to how this is a book that's framed as a Disney book, a Disney autobiography. There's a core readership, but it has value and merit for folks in other spaces and other places because they can still take these universal lessons with them in their respective pursuits, whether it's as a teacher or someone uh, taking graduate courses, right? There's there's such versatility in, in these points that he relays, which I think um, allows it to you know, to have further value beyond even just our sm small but burgeoning Disney book community. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting them because like I said, I got it from the library. So when you have a Kindle, it's not like you can just like flip through the pages to check it out. So when I saw the first lesson learned at the end of the chapter, I was like, oh, this is going to be a thing. And then I started looking forward to seeing what the, the lessons learned were, trying to think through them myself as we got through the stories. I just thought of a random story. Um, this could be quite an abrupt transition, uh, but I thought of a story. I was just flipping back through the pictures and there I came across a picture of him and Ronald Reagan. And one of the stories that just like floored me is we know presidents go to Walt Disney World. I'm a government teacher. Anytime presidents and Disney and like government and Disney cross, I'm just like very happy to learn about it. Um, but when they were building Epcot and they wanted our international ambassadors and they were having trouble with like getting visa paperwork through. And one of his friends just like, oh, come over. We can talk about it. And then Ronald Reagan, the president is just chilling at his house. And it's like, oh, did you um, <laughs> bring, they were talking about football, small talk. And he's like, oh, by the way, how's Epcot going? And like got the president looped in on like, we need these visas. And he's like, and then we got them two weeks later. That just like, what? <laughs> 
that was one of those moments where like that only happens in such unique roles that just kind of like I had to take a second was like that's incredible and crazy well and actually and kind of piggybacking off of that uh Emily what what I love about it too was he was articulating the merits of what that program could afford in terms of he said you know decades out these might be world ambassadors not just Epcot mm-hmm. or country ambassadors but like you know, uh, yeah. leading countries and that because they may have had those formative experiences as fellow cast members, that conflict could be resolved. It could be like a mini United Nations, I think it was described yeah. as. So I think going back to a question you said before, of like, what did we get out of like Disney? He really did take some time on that Soviet um, Cold War era. He entitles the chapter what I did during the Cold War. And that's where this comes up. And I don't think we often think about when we think about like Disney in the eighties and nineties, we're thinking about um, Epcot, then uh, studios, but I don't think we actually always put it in terms of what else is happening in the world, especially to open Epcot and getting these different countries involved. And they wanted a Russia pavilion. So what would that entail in that um, communication and partnership with a country that we have a pretty rocky history with? Uh, So that I thought was super interesting that I don't think, in other books i've really gotten someone outright saying we're in a cold war trying to open a disney park like bringing that very clear connection um so that was really cool and that's where the epcot thing came from he's like how do i get this to be a foreign policy objective of ronald reagan's to make this happen quite a crossroads of politics and pop culture your discussion of different locations did anyone else pick up on that he was like i wanted to have disney australia but michael eisner went to china instead and then i retired and i was like oh like that i took from that that he like really wanted australian disney and when it didn't go that way he's like that's my 44 years i'm gonna head out like if if we had gotten disney australia he might have gotten that 45 year pin or well beyond because i'm sure that would have taken some time brett it seems like you did yeah, no, I was just going to say that was one of my fun facts where we've heard about a Disney park in Australia, but I guess I wasn't familiar with the genesis of the idea or someone who was spearheading it. Yeah, but I feel like we're almost full circle because in just a few weeks, Disney Cruise Line, the Disney Wonder, will be sailing to Australia for the first time. I kind of want to be like, did anybody think to put Dick Nunes on the ship? Like, I want I want him to be be a part of that. He should get to be part of the Trans-Pacific sailing i mean maybe he doesn't want to at his age but i'm like it's kind of like his dream is coming true in a way we are bringing disney to australia it is really cool to think where else like in hindsight we know where disney ended up but yeah and i don't think i caught that when they were debating where to put disneyland paris but they're calling disneyland paris or euro disney at the time um that they were in a running with spain i don't think i caught that and that dick wanted spain over france and it came down to some politics and economics that France ended up being the choice. But I don't think I really recognized that there were other countries in the running. I don't know why I didn't like, of course there'd be other countries in the running, but like quite a span of where Disney wanted to go, which was really interesting thing. Like it would be cool. I don't know where else like we put a new international park right now if we had to build one. I'm sure, like I said, Dick Nunes has lots of ideas. It's Australia. That's what he wants. He will he will get his Australia. I don't know. Not that I can't get all views are my own. I do not represent the Walt Disney <laughs> Company. I just got excited because Disney Cruise Line is heading to Australia. But I would say if they were to do that, that would make sense to me. But again, I think we're good. Like at Shanghai, that was an undertaking. I don't know that I see another full park. I think the the cruise line they've announced. Uh, the Disney Adventure will be sailing from Singapore. Mm-hmm. So that's a different way of um, expanding the access to Disney. We will bring Disney to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would have loved to. I, I So I went to Disneyland Paris for the first time in, in the summer and I had a great experience. I also love the notion of Disney in Spain. So I'm, I'm disappointed that that didn't come to fruition either. But I don't think we're going to have multiple European Disney parks. Um, alas, uh, I guess kind of uh, starting to wrap up, like what were, what were some additional takeaways that um, that are going to stick with you after having read this book, whether it be further perspective about Disney history or, or even Dick Nunes as an individual now that we have further context to all of his contributions? I learned 
that sod goes green side up. That was a delightful story. And it comes up in Jim Cora's. And I was like, oh, it's a perfect match. Like we got the story from Jim Cora's side and we got it from, from Dick Nunes' side. I really hope he said t-shirts got made. And I'm like, I need someone who still has one in their family or who was there and worked there and got the green side up t-shirt. Again, those were things I loved. It's just the sense of humor and the community that these workers have um, that they can do things like that, make a t-shirt about a saying that their boss just kept repeating. Uh, but I want to, I want to see the shirt. I need it. Someone put it on Twitter. Someone put it on Instagram, tag us in it. We need to see this actual t-shirt. I was bummed when one of those was not in the picture section. I really wish that it was. Agreed. When I discovered the picture section after having completed the book, but then seeing Barnes and Noble, I was like, oh, are we going to get the t-shirt? No, but that was such a delightful story. Yeah. I, um, I feel like there's, there's so many, par- so many interesting parallels between this, um, his style of writing. And we were talking about Kevin Rafferty earlier, again, completely different walks of life in terms of what their careers entailed and where their talents were. But the notion of, of humor, which we've talked about a lot, um, even just now. And I, I love how there's a little chapter where he says, playing favorites and here are all my favorite Disney things. And he said his favorite attraction was the Jungle Cruise. And he said, um, I'll quote him, I learned to pay attention to detail, deliver a consistent experience for every guest, and control the pacing of the show elements to create the greatest impact. I also learned how to listen to constructive criticism and most importantly, take action. So that notion of, well, certainly there's the humor aspect, which manifests in, in a style, but also the notion of um, just delivering excellence, which is, I feel like that that attraction especially, is it's so contingent on the cast members to provide that. And in his role, he was trying to allow others to demonstrate excellence. So I, I really value that part. I think something to, to take away from Dick Nunes' story is just as much as Walt trained and passed along this legacy there he's part of that generation that now is passing on to the next and that there is growth and there are things that are consistent um i think sometimes we get caught up in the corporate things or current events that he gives us really good evidence of how disney today does still have a lot of walt and that original culture in it we just may have grown with it um but that we he has hopefully left what he's learned the same way Walt mentored him. He hopes he mentors others. And I think you walk away wanting to mentor someone in whatever capacity that is, either that's your own family and your kids. Um, I'm a teacher. I care about mentoring my students um, or just whatever team you're a part of as well. I think I felt like inspired to, you know, be a better team member to have effective communication. Um, Like you felt good at the end of this book. And that's really nice. That even though he retires and you're like, oh, he's done. Like you felt very good when you finished. That idea of empowering others, I think, is is so profound. You know, he was talking about, I can't remember the anecdote. So Courtney and Emily, if you could maybe help surface this. He was kind of illustrating that if you leave trash somewhere in the park, like it will be picked up within minutes. And that notion of like, you know, we we pride ourselves on this, but I think it was something you alluded to um, earlier. I think he took a bet with someone who's like, I bet, yeah. Josh like fell and he wanted to prove, he's like, look how good of a team we are. He's like, we're going to time it. How long does it take for for someone on our team to come pick that up? And it was under, he's like five minutes and they did it in like two and a half or something like that. Yeah. No, thanks for um, offering that. I couldn't remember exactly. I, I think what's nice about it is it, it shows that like every person in the Disney corporation has value, whether you're picking up trash or making these humongous decisions and maybe can persuade presidents to, to help make certain uh, big measures uh, unfold quickly. Um, and, and that's a, like we were talking about just the transferable point, right? We, we all want to do better. We want other people to, to be at their best, but per one of his lessons, you, you need to provide them with resources so that those expectations can be achieved. Because otherwise, it's it's kind of all for naught. We read Dick Nunes's autobiography, and we're not done. Uh, so, uh, before we close out, um, and I and you all provide uh, your uh, contact information where people can check out Book of the Mouse Club. 
I will remind listeners again that uh, you can check all three of us out on the newest episode in which we talk about uh, Jim Core's autobiography and and also written by uh, Jeff Curdy. But uh, Emily and Courtney, where can people find you on on the socials and uh, the, the podcast web? Where can we find you all? Sure. So anywhere you're listening to Notably Disney, I'm sure you can find Book of the Mouse Club podcast. If you want to keep up with us on social, we are at Book of the Mouse Club on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling that. You're, you're going to call it Pride Twitter from my cold dead hands, I guess. Um, we are also at Book of the Mouse on Instagram as well. You can keep up with me, Courtney, on Instagram at Great Gutsby and on Twitter slash X at Courtney underscore Guth. And you can find me on uh, those socials under the same handle, Emily underscore McD. Always a pleasure to talk with you both. It's It's been a a good ride. I think we've uh, been recording episodes across our podcasts for four and a half years now. So this is yeah, another good addition in terms of being able to dive into books and learn more about the people who make the magic for us. So always appreciate our discussions. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for making magic for us by inviting us here. And we're excited that we got to discuss two books together this month across both of our shows. Yeah, thanks for having us, Brett. This is great. And thank you again to Emily and Courtney for joining me on Notably Disney. I highly encourage you to check out Book of the Mouse Club in any case because they always have interesting discussions about Disney books and conversations with authors and occasionally other podcasters like myself. As I mentioned during this recording, you can check out our collective review of Jim Cora's recent autobiography that was co-authored with Jeff Curdy. So visit Book of the Mouse Club for that enjoyment. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.